uh, just kind of actually reminded in this uh, message that I'm uh, preparing here of this, this past year, um, felt like that this was something that I came across and, and struggling with. Uh, and here the Lord provided for me and just kind of reminding me afresh of, of uh, what I was called for, um, who I am in Christ. So why don't you turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. So Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved... Just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, this morning I would like to speak to you on following our Lord's example in service. We are in the middle of the holiday season, uh, getting together with friends and family, uh, but also this message is to help and, and to equip us and to remind us in this upcoming year uh, within the context of church life. Each of us needs a reminder of why we serve and how to serve. In this section, Paul, he, he must have seen some lack within the Philippian church. Again, you know, why, why is he encouraging them uh, to do nothing from selfishness? You know, and, and, and all of these things, he must have seen something within them. And so he penned this encouragement to them. He lists several attributes that they should put on, and then what does he do? He provides them with an example. This example was meant to be an encouragement to them in that Christ Jesus exhibited the same attitudes in his life and was rewarded by God in the end. Today I would like to start with the example of Christ, where he demonstrated the attributes that Paul was calling in the Philippians, uh, the Philippian church to imitate. Of course, here in the section here, you know, Paul immediately goes on to, um, uh, you know, Christ 
laying, laying himself aside, um, you know, emptied himself. And so in some ways you have the, the incarnation here. You know, Christ laying aside his glory. And then it goes almost immediately into his death and laying himself aside. And, and, and by all means, this is probably the highest example of service. And I'm not trying to, to lower this down by going to another example of Christ laying down his life. However, for, for me, um, just th- there is a specific verse, uh, a specific example of Christ that I often go to in thinking about Christ's service uh, to the saints and in Christ's service to me. And so I'd like to, to, to go to that verse first. Uh, and so if you want to, actually, if you want to hold your hand here in Philippians, we'll come back to this. But if you want to go to John chapter 13. So this is the, the beginning, it is what people call it, the, the uh, upper room discourse. So it's the time of the Passover, and here Jesus is with his disciples up in this upper room. And, uh, of course, immediately, as, as we're about to read here, he goes and he uh, does something. He serves them in a particular fashion. And then they, they, they have the Lord's Supper, and then they have a, kind of a discourse, Jesus talking to them and encouraging them. So John chapter 13, uh, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, he got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Well, to start off, it's helpful to understand who is the one doing the service. Who is the one who laid aside his garments and girded himself with a towel? If we have low thoughts on the person of Christ, this text will not stand out to us. We would just read over this and subconsciously think that this person is no different than any other house slave. We should stand at awe of this text, really even more than some of his acts of miracles. Within this text, we are given a wonderful picture of the person of Christ, where he is from, who he is, that is, his glory, where he is going, and his heart for people. So in this little section here, I'm going to kind of break, break this down into four, four sections here. Uh, so the first thing is where he is from. So the text says that Jesus knew that he had come forth from God. Jesus was fully aware that he came from God. The Gospels are full of Jesus indicating that he was sent by God. I did a, a little word search on, that, uh, on the word sent. Uh, and in the, in the book of John alone, Jesus mentioned it 41 times. Just this word sent. Not, I am from the Father, which he does mention also numerous times. But just this word sent 
41 times just in the book of John alone. See, see you get this idea that Jesus, he was fully confident of, of who sent him, who he was, where he was from. And actually 10 times of those uh, was actually mentioned in this upper room discourse. But even if we, if we look back, what, what's one of the, the first words of Jesus Christ that we have penned? Well, we have in Luke chapter 2, right? So what was happening? Here we have uh, Joseph and Mary going to Jerusalem uh, to celebrate the Passover. They were going to the temple. And what happened? Well, they forgot somebody, didn't they? Uh, Jesus uh, stayed behind in the temple, and, and they're, they're going around looking for him, you know, frantically looking around trying to find him. And then once they finally found him, what, what are the words that he says? Why is it that you are looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? So our, our earliest words of Christ in Luke chapter 2, again, he, he's confessing that God is my father. He, he's aware of this fact that he came forth from God. We don't know exactly at what point in time he fully understand who he was, how, how young he was, but we know at least by the age of 12, he had some concept that God was his father. Also, we have throughout, again, the book of John, here's a few other verses here. Uh, John chapter 4, 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John five twenty three, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent me. John eight forty two. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. And then we also have in John 17, O righteous father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And even, uh, even God himself, right, audibly uh, in the Gospels, testified that Jesus was his son. So we have two examples there. In, in uh, Mark chapter 1, when Jesus was being baptized by John the Baptist, uh, the father spoke out audibly to other people, saying, You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. And then also we have there at the Transfiguration, also in, in Mark 9, where the father says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Now, why, why, did, why, why did God speak out like this? And we know that this wasn't for Jesus himself. Jesus, just, Jesus was aware of this. Jesus grasped this. He didn't need confirmation from the father. But these words that God spoke audibly were for the people around him to confirm who he was. So let's, let's think about this. Jesus, fully aware that he was from the Father, aware that the Father sent him, aware that the Father was fully behind all that he said and did, aware that he was going to, um, going to do the very works of his Father, aware that he should have honor just as the Father is honored, he had a full understanding that he was from the Father and had the Father's continual presence and power. 
And yet, what did he do? If you had this authority, would you lower yourself or would you expect others to serve you? Even though Jesus had this authority, even though Jesus, again, fully understood where he was from, that he was from the Father, he humbled himself and served the disciples. The second part is who he is, his glory. There in in, uh, John chapter 13, verse 3, it says, Jesus, knowing, so again, something that Jesus knew, he comprehended, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. So here, and actually a little bit later in John 17, 5, it says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Did you catch catch that past tense there? The glory which I had with you Before the world was. The glory which Jesus had, he laid aside. Right? Kind of similar to Jesus laying aside his garments. Jesus emptied himself. He emptied himself of the glory that he had with the Father. Why? See, this shows the infinite condescension of our Lord Jesus Christ. The immeasurable humility of the king of kings. I mean, how can we describe somebody so high, humbling himself so low? You know, we can talk about maybe like a king coming and lowering himself like a peasant, but that, that, that really doesn't give a best, the best description of what's happening here. Here we have Jesus Christ, who is with God, who had very gl- the, the exact glory of God the Father, laying that aside and emptying himself and coming in the form of a bondservant and, and, again, laying himself aside for us. This was no mere house servant washing feet. This was very God of very God, as the Nicene Creed says, taking the form of a bondservant. By human standards, this was probably the most humbling act of Christ besides hanging on the cross. In John chapter 1, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The disciples saw in part his glory that evening, and even before that, and saw him perform this menial task on them. So again, you have there, think, think of the Apostle John, the one who wrote this. And, and where was he at? Where, where, where has he been with Christ? He was there at the transfiguration of Christ, seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. Again, this, you know, the, the glory surrounding Jesus. Uh, and then what's happening here? Jesus, in laying this aside, grabbing a towel, girding himself, and washing his feet. It's like, do you see? It's like, what is happening here? It's like, why would he do that? If you had all glory with the Father, if you had angels bowing down to you in song, day and night, you know, covering their faces, could you bow down and serve your own creatures? 
Can you put yourself in, in, in Jesus' spot? See, Jesus was fully aware of his deity, fully aware of his own majesty, aware of his own divine power, aware of his own supremacy over all creation. Yet, he served his disciples. Yet, again, he girded himself with a towel. I mean, of, of all things, Jesus should have girded himself with a robe, a fancy robe, right? But no, what did he do? He girded himself with a towel and washed the disciples' feet. I also th- I thought of that verse, I didn't write it down, but uh, there in, in Hebrews chapter 1, what, what does it say about Jesus? That he upholds what? All things by the word of his power, right? So again, the, the one who is upholding all things, holding all things into, into existence, and yet lowering himself at this point by washing the disciples' feet. The third thing is where he is going. Uh, Verse 1 of of John 13, uh, Jesus knew that his hour had come that he would depart out of this world to the Father. And also there in verse 3, knowing uh, that he was going to go back to the Father. Jesus knew the time had come for his death. The weight of the atonement was surely on his heart. Obviously, we know that Jesus was fully aware of the prophecies, right? He was familiar with passages such as Isaiah 53, which called him the man of sorrows, smitten by God. He was aware that he was going to be pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, We are healed. So again, think of some of those descriptions that was going to happen to him. And probably even more striking to Jesus would be that it was going to please the Father to crush the Son. So imagine the weight of that upon him. Thinking about that, that my hour has come. I am about to experience, I am about to fulfill this prophecy. How would we react if we knew that we were about to die? What would be the last thing you would want to do before facing the wrath of God upon yourself? Would you continue in your service to others or would you isolate yourself or coil up and expect others to serve you? Jesus was fully aware of what he was about to endure, but he laid aside himself and served the disciples. Again, this whole upper room discourse, uh, who was, the, bene- who was the, the benefactor of this? It wasn't Jesus. Jesus really didn't need this upper room time with his disciples, but he did, did this on behalf of them. Which leads me to the fourth point here is his heart for people. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 13 says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So again, right before Jesus girded himself, having all of this knowledge, knowing where he came from, from, uh, who he was and where he is going, but also filled with love towards his disciples. 
Love is a theme in the upper room discourse. It's actually it's mentioned over 20 times in these few chapters. So you can kind of really see this, this really is a love feast, right, from our Lord Jesus uh, providing for his disciples, just exhibiting love upon them. So John 15, 9 says, Just as the Father has loved me, so maybe I need to say this again, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. I mean, what more do we have to say? In the exact way that the Father loved the Son, so the Son loves his disciples. Again, it says, just as. Not like in part, but exactly. The very heart of Christ was for his disciples. There wasn't a notch off from the most precise, pure, heavenly, God-like love that poured out from Christ towards his disciples. Nothing was held back. Jesus carried them through all of their unbelief, failures, imbalanced and rash statements, lack of understanding and lack of faith. Even through all of this, Jesus did not get tired of them, but loved them until the very end. He does not become weary of us. That's something to rest in. We can, we can see all the failures of the disciples and, and think about, you know, how foolish could they be? And obviously we know that we're, we're the same way. And, but yet Jesus loved them to the end. And Jesus carried them all the way to the end. And that's an encouragement to us. Jesus is going to carry us all the way to the end and does not grow weary of us. Jesus knew perfectly that they were going to forsake him. The disciples were going to actually turn their backs on Jesus. In spite of this, Jesus pressed on in love towards them until the end. The word spoken in this upper room, again, was not for himself. Again, this was for the disciples. Knowing that he was about to bear the wrath of God, Jesus did not shut himself up or look for ways to please himself, but he dug deeper in love by preparing his disciples for his absence. I mean, again, this, this whole discourse, think of John chapter 17, right? He's actually not speaking a really much of a direct word to the disciples, but this, this open uh, discourse between him and the Father, but, but saying this openly for whose benefit? For the disciples' benefit. And even after ascending into heaven, Jesus still has not forgotten us. Again, we can recall to our minds, uh, if you're a part of the study with the, the gentle and lowly book, about Jesus' heavenly service to us with his intercessory prayer and his advocacy of us. As someone once said, Jesus came from God, not leaving him, and went to God, not leaving us. So you kind of see his heart, 
Jesus came down. Where's his heart? His heart's still with the Father, right? Jesus left us, right, going back to the Father, but not really leaving us. His heart never left us. But really, maybe even something, I mean, it's striking to think about this, again, of of Jesus' love towards us, even in spite of all of our failures. But here's something else that really struck out to me. Uh, Here in verse 2, During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. This verse is shocking, given what was about to take place. The devil entered, uh, entered Judas prior to the upper room, according to Luke chapter 22, verse 3, and entered him again in John 13, 27. It was talking about like, like basically like kind of gave him these thoughts, entering into him. You know, we don't, we don't know clearly if, if, if Judas, during this whole time, if he was like truly possessed, or if again, if, if just simply the devil was kind of speaking into him and, and feeding him this, uh, this, these thoughts of betrayal. Uh, regardless, Jesus was fully aware that Judas was a tool of the devil for his death. Judas, or excuse me, Jesus washed the feet of his betrayer. Think about that. The son of perdition, as it says, or the son of destruction, had his feet washed by the Son of God. Jesus was fully aware that the feet he was washing was getting ready to be dirty again as Judas fled to gather the Roman cohort and and the Jewish officers. Take note of the heart of Christ even towards his enemies. If Christ is tender towards his enemies, is he not going to be tender towards you? If we knew that someone was going to betray us, would we be able to lay down our lives in service to them? You see, again, that's why this example of Christ is important. It's important for us to think about the person of Christ. Naturally, if we have an enemy... What would we do? Probably turn our backs and kind of go the other way. No, what, what did Jesus do? Jesus didn't send him out of the upper room. He could have. But no, Jesus allowed him to be there, and he washed his feet. And really, even what's amazing, too, is that Jesus even broke the bread and juice and gave it to Judas. So how should we then respond towards our enemies? See, we should lay down our lives also for those who hate us. With the full knowledge of all that was mentioned, Jesus got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. One commentator pointed out, which is it's, it's true, uh, but just the, 
you know, Jesus' service was, was precise, and, and it, it, was, it was good. It's not like he did a, a faulty job. It's not as if he simply washed the disciples' feet and just kind of let them remain wet, but yet he, again, he, 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 he cleaned them, and then he dried them. He dried them off so that they don't get dirty again immediately. So this, in, in this whole imagery, again, of Jesus laying down his life in the service of, of washing the disciples' feet, Again, we see we have a clear picture of what Jesus did in his incarnation and his ministry of service and sacrifice. Again, as we read there in Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 7, Jesus existed in the form of God. Uh, this form was an exact stamp or representation of the very nature of God. But Jesus willingly set aside the honor, glory, majesty, and reverence due to him and girded himself with flesh. We know that Jesus didn't stop his service short, but again, he continued until the point of death, even death on the cross. Again, we can look over his entire ministry, and everything that we see, we see this constant laying down of his life, this constant act of service, this full act of love. Again, not holding anything back. So the main emphasis of this message is, is this, is that service is a fruit of salvation. Paul is saying to use the example of Christ to encourage us to work this out within us and to exercise service in this local body. Our Savior's service should make our hearts overflow with service towards others. Jesus left his glory aside and served me. Can't I lay my comforts aside and serve others? The usage of examples to stir up action is used several times in the New Testament. And, uh, and again, actually including within this very section of John 13. You know, again, why, why did Jesus wash the disciples' feet? Why did he do that? Well, a little bit later in John 13, uh, verse 12, it says, So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Again, I, I wouldn't take this literally of Jesus commanding that we have to wash each other's feet but I think it's more symbolic in nature that this act of service, right? Again, kind of as a, a servant, a house servant would go and clean somebody's feet because it was dirty. So they needed help. They needed, they needed to be served. So Jesus is saying here, a slave is not greater than his master. So who's the slave and who's the master in, in, in the statement here? We are the slave. He is the master. 
nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. Jesus sends us. We are, we are the ones who were sent. Uh, Jesus is the one is, is is in control here. So if Jesus himself has been the master and the one who is sending, if he stooped low and washed the disciples' feet, what should we do? Again, enter into this ministry of service. So Jesus left us with this example here. Again, if the very God of very God stooped low to serve, we also ought to do the same. Again, we should lay our side, uh, again, what, what comes upon us in our flesh, laying aside our, our pride and selfishness. Also, another example in the New Testament, so you don't have to turn there, uh, but in 2 Corinthians 8, chapter 9, uh, Paul uh, here he, he's trying to um, encourage the, the Corinthian church to gather together uh, funds to help the Macedonian church. And, and so he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So again, here Paul is using this example of Jesus Christ to stir up something within us, to encourage us to follow in the footsteps of Christ. See, Jesus was generous with himself, right? And he gave himself over to us. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes, he became poor. So again, Paul is simply trying to stir up within us saying, hey, you guys can give some money <laughs> to help out, right? You know, in, in, in like manner, be generous and help out other people who are in need. And the last example here, if, if you want to actually turn back to Philippians chapter 2, is in this section here in, in chapter 2. Again, where Paul... In, in encouraging the Philippian church uh, about these particular attributes that he wants to see within them. He gives them an example of Jesus Christ, of emptying himself, humbling himself to the point of death on the cross. So Paul is encouraging the Philippians to be of the same mind as Christ, to have his selfless, sacrificial, serving mind. To be so consumed by what Jesus has done for you that, that it, again, that it overflows into other people. And then a little bit later, uh, there in uh, verse 12, Paul charges the Philippian church to work out their salvation within the Philippian church. Again, this is in the, the context of, uh, again, the, the, the church and how you should be acting within the church. We know that this is not working at your salvation. Uh, there's no work that you can do that can add to the very merit of the finished work of Christ. Again, all working towards salvation is pointless. We don't need to, to go into that. But no, this working out is just simply living out what God has done in your life. God has worked in us, and we work out what he has done within us. 
Again, God has done a work in our lives in transforming our lives. And so it's just simply Paul is calling out, saying, work that out. One natural fruit that comes from God working within us is the service to the saints. We are called to work it out, to cultivate it. So the big question is how? How do we work this out? Uh, This thought on the person of Christ is rich, and it can motivate us to follow in his footsteps. But how do we apply this? How do we we imitate his example? How can we lay aside our selfishness and regard one another as more important than ourselves? Should we just try a little harder? No, of course not. There are uh, two things that can help us as we seek to work out this fruit of salvation. Uh, These these two things have been a help to me uh, with service in the church and also in service into the day-to-day activities. Again, we we know that it's it's not that uh, Jesus giving us this high calling of service. Well, I'm only a servant in the church. I'm not a servant at home. And that's not true. It's, it's, if you're a servant at, in church, you need to be a servant at the house also. So the, fir- the, the, the first thing, it really is very simple, uh, but it is hard to accept. There are two glorious words that we need to have imprinted on our hearts and minds. These two words are the beginning stages of receiving the strength to lay down your life. Are you ready? I can't. (laughs) This attitude of inability is at the very beginning of the Christian life and continues until the very end of your life. At the very beginning of your Christian life, you realize that you are in sin and you needed help from the outside. You needed God to come in and help you. You were hopeless. Again, all, all attempts to try to better yourself are futile. You can't improve yourself. You can't get over this sin. You're stuck in this sin. I need help. So you realize that I can't. I can't do it in and of myself. And really, we never move on from that point, do we? The Christian life is not one of heroically conquering some unthinkable feats There may be unthinkable feats in front of you, but the truth is is that you are unable to conquer them in your own strength. Instead, you are always carried through them by God and provided strength from him as needed at that moment in time. This expression of inability is not an I won't, but a realization that you are unable to accomplish what is in front of you with Christ-likeness. So again, so what I'm saying is saying, I can't do it. It's not a, I can't do it. I'm, I'm not going to do it. I won't do this. But it's a cry for help and looking to the Lord in faith to provide. So kind of as an example, I was just going to share about um, the, 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 the day that I was going to approach my wife, Rosanna, uh, in, in courtship. It was a Sunday, and I was in Hannibal, Missouri, uh, and just so happened that I, I was in a little house church. Uh, some of you guys know Chad Thompson, uh, his, his church there, 
And uh, so not, not a large gathering, um, but it, it happened that uh, Paul Washer was actually there. Um, and of, of all the things that Paul was going to speak on that day, again, that very day, the, that day that I was going to approach my wife, future wife, what would he speak on? The duties of a husband. <laughs> it's like, there's like 20 people here. It's like, of all things, it's like, this is like, this is for me. And so, like, you know, here Paul is talking about the, the requirements of a husband, the high calling of a husband. You know, the, the, the duty of a husband to lay down his life for his wife. You know, to be her shepherd, to guard her, to protect for her. Uh, again, just all these duties. And it's like throughout the time, I'm, I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, okay, Lord, is this, like, am I doing the wrong thing? <laughs> am, I, am, I, am I not supposed to do this? Uh, like, are you telling me I'm not ready? Uh, but then eventually, it's like the Lord pressed in on me of simply saying, you're right, Andy. He's like, you, you can't do it. Try to, try to love her with all, try to love her as Christ loved the church. Do it. It's like, I can't do it. Like, I can't do it in my own strength. It's, it's impossible. So, so again, when you realize that, when you realize that you need help, and, and, you, and it, it, again, it, it's a cry to the Lord. Lord, I need you to help me. I, again, I, I can't do this. I can't love this person the way that I should. I can't serve this person in Christ's likeness. And maybe, again, maybe it's, it's, it's an enemy, somebody who doesn't like you. Lord, I, I can't love this person. I can't lay down my life for this person who is my enemy. I can't do this. I need your help. When you look to the Lord in that, what happens? He provides, doesn't he? Again, this is, this is important because we have to be careful not to serve in our own strength, to try to do it on our own. I am capable to be a good husband. <laughs> I'm capable of being a good servant. No, that's not true at all. Uh, 1 Peter 4, 11 says, whoever serves, again, this is in the context of uh, church life. However, again, I think we could argue that this does apply elsewhere. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Why? Why does he say that? So whoever serves is to do so as one serving with the strength that comes from the outside, the one that, that God supplies. Why? Finishing the verse, it says, So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. I mean, again, as, as believers, it's like our, our heart's desire is to bring glory to Christ, to bring glory to God. And so what, what Peter is saying here is that whenever you serve or whenever you do anything in the strength that God supplies, what does that do? That brings honor and glory to him, not you. It is possible to offer service in your own strength, but again, it would bring you 
the glory instead of Jesus. And we know, again, you know, why, why do we think this way? You know, why, why do we think, you know, I can do this on my own or, or, you know, like, again, serving within your own strength? You know, we know that, that God, again, at uh, Acts 17, it says, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. In the end, God doesn't need your service. God is not in need of you serving him. We need to accept that. But God does use us in service. Why? Again, well, we can point back to 1 Peter, so that he may receive the glory. The second thing is to recognize that God will provide the strength that is needed for the service he gives us. Again, what does uh, verse 13 say? Say, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God not only provided the way of salvation, but he has also provided the way for us to work this salvation out. What is this way? Well, it's through the Holy Spirit. Again, this is not something that we can extract on our own. It's like we we need help day to day, you know, walking in the Spirit to extract out this, again, this working out your salvation, working these things out, pulling these things out. This fruit of salvation is worked out through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit as we walk in faith. There are times when God places us right in the middle of an opportunity to serve. So again, there's times when it just, it just falls right in our laps. We don't have a choice. You know, uh, we, we, are, we are called to serve. You know, if your child gets up in the middle of the night, <laughs> can't just let anybody else do it. You, you need to go and you need to lay down your life and to serve that child. Other times, God will place a need right in front of us. So again, maybe there's something that, that we see in front of us that there, there is a need. Well, sometimes that may be the Lord calling you to fulfill that need. Regardless, the Holy Spirit is within us to help us have the same attitude which Christ had in himself. The Holy Spirit will give us the will, as it says here in, uh, chapter, in verse 13. Uh, For it is God who is at work in you both to will. Um, I, I do like the ESV translation of this. It says, For the one bringing forth... In your both the desire and the effort, I think, is that right? Uh, for the one bringing forth, probably bringing forth in you both the desire and the effort for the sake of his good pleasure is God. So again, who is the one in you giving you these desires and giving you the ability to bring this out, to work it out? Is the Holy Spirit. So again, it's this, I can't, I can't do it, realizing that you cannot do it in and of yourself, but the Lord can. And, and again, crying out to him, and when you call out to him, he will provide, and he will work this out within you. So in summary, God is calling us to offer our service as he provides the strength in the circumstances he has placed us in. 
We need to recognize our inability, but also grasp that God has placed opportunities in front of us and will give us the help we need for the service. So yes, is there anything that God has placed in your heart in regards to service in our church? I mean, do you see a need? Again, the, 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 the call or the, the, um, the service in the church here doesn't fall on a few individuals, right? It's, it's the whole body of believers. And sometimes God may place this, um, this thought, God may place this need on your heart that maybe other people aren't even seeing. Well, why would God put this on your heart? And, and maybe, it's, maybe God's not calling you directly to actually physically do this, but what could you do? Well, I could offer service and prayer, couldn't I? And Lord, I see this need. I don't feel like I can do this right now. And, and maybe, Lord, maybe you are leading me in this right now, or, or maybe not right this moment, but maybe eventually. But Lord, would you provide? So Ephesians 4 Again, it says, God gave pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, which is to the building up of the body of Christ until most of us attain to the unity of the faith. No, it says until we all attain. So again, it's this whole thing, all of us working together, pastors, teachers, and members of the body coming together and, and, and working on this ministry of building up one another. So what, what has God placed in front of you? This local body of believers needs you to selflessly enter into the work of service in order to build up this body. Where has God called you outside of the church? Who has God placed in your life? Again, God is sovereign and all that he does. God has given us relationships, friends, a place to work, neighbors. What is God calling us to? To lay our, lay, lay our lives down in service to one another. I mentioned 1 Peter 4, 11 earlier, and I think this is a good way to, to finish. Um, again, Peter says, whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. So as we go on from here, and thinking about, you know, what am I going to face this year, this week, today, uh, again this evening, this night, Reminding yourself, A, that that you're not your own. Reminding also that Christ Jesus, I mean, he he came and he came to serve. Jesus laid his life down for us. It's like we can lay down our lives for other people. Again, not in and of ourselves, but through, uh, through the working of the Holy Spirit. 